Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Welcome back, Rintoul and Sermon. But uh, we got Vic Nazar and Jamie Dodd filling in this week. Me, traditionally hosting Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650. You're very familiar with Jamie Dodd here on uh, Sportsnet 960. Thanks for uh, making us part of your morning. 960, 960. If you want to text us, 650, 650 as well. Uh, it's been popping off in both inboxes. Oh, yeah. I feel like they need to know how competitive it is to get your text in. And uh, to, to hear your text read as well. Might encourage uh, both sides to really go after it as well. Well, I, I do like it because sometimes, you know, we have listeners who, because they know we're on in both markets. Yes. So they'll they'll purposely try to get the other city a little turned up. You know what I mean? Like, oh, who, winners and losers of the trade deadline. And, and the text will come in from Calgary. Oh, but Vancouver was definitely a loser, right? <laughs> Just to try to get the other side worked up a little bit. And I, and I encourage that. I like that. It, it'd be funny if both sides could see each other. That'd be really... Really, just oh yeah, to, it was like a just a chat room, just going nuts. I guess that's what Twitter is for. Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, well, Twitter. I mean, yeah, it's for a lot of things, but getting irrationally upset about hockey is certainly one of them. <laughs> yeah, so keep your thoughts coming in again. Six fifty, six fifty, and nine sixty, nine sixty. But we did want to touch on uh, the winners and the losers of the NHL offseason. Uh, we'll do that in a bit. So get your thoughts in on that. But as we we're just mentioning the uh, the Olympics, uh, Penny Alexiak just crushing the pool. That's what she does. Yep, wins medals and passes fools in the pool. That's what she does. And uh, Grabbing a silver medal for Canada, but like right now, and you know, she, she gets lost sometimes in the ranks of every four years. We're reminded, or five years, we're reminded. Oh my goodness, she's incredible. But where does she rank right now amongst uh, either most dominant Canadian athletes or just most entertaining Canadian athletes? I I, I don't know which way you want to do this as far as like, is it what captures our imagination or what excites us the most? best i mean whatever you want to say right but yeah that conversation and yeah i mean she falls out of the public consciousness obviously but then and then you're so in the spotlight for this little two or three week burst so you know sometimes you can almost go the over the other way i guess and and overrate the olympic athletes when you're having these conversations right in the heat of the olympics but you kind of look around and you know we'll put hockey to the side just for now right we can get into that conversation it's sure. always an interesting debate how do you measure hockey players against you know more international athletes who are bit from from Canada but you look at some of the non-hockey names that you would normally throw in here right like Alfonso Davies is an obvious one i mean he's on the shelf right now right so it's not a long-term injury but he's not playing at the gold cup for instance helping Canada do really well at that tournament so we don't have exactly a sense of where his game is at right now you know same thing with Bianca Andreescu since she had that breakthrough at the U.S. Open she's really battled health injuries she's had trouble staying on the tennis court so you know a fully healthy Andreescu she's probably a challenger for this title but she hasn't been been fully healthy for quite a while at this point so you kind of go through some of the other options you know you could look at Denis Shapovalov hasn't really broken through to have the same level of success that we're talking about with someone like Penny Alexiak you know you kind of go through the options and Again, given what she's already accomplished at the, at the last Olympics, you know, what she looks like she's going to do at this Olympics, 
given the depth of field in swimming, like how incredibly competitive it is all around the world, I think Penny Alexia, Penny Alexia has to be really high in that conversation. Yeah, uh, you know, just uh, I, I, I wish more. For, it, it's tough because like part of the appeal of the Olympics is like falling in love all over with these sports like handball. I love handball. I'm not watching it 365. You know, I, no. I, I, I check it out at the Olympics, right? Swimming, it's very fun to check it out at the Olympics, right? I, I'm not catching up on world championships of swimming every year to see who's 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 leading the pack. And so it's it's moments like this that we, we need it to remind ourselves, oh, my God, Penny Alexiak, we should maybe uh, heighten the profile the other three years when uh, we're not paying attention. But it, it's true. She might be in that conversation. Obviously, Brooke Henderson's in this conversation. Yep. And, and, you know, not dominant yet because the tennis – Depth is so insane, but you mentioned Chapo. To me, it might be Felix Oje, uh, Felix Oje Aliassime, because he's going to become a massive star. Now, if it means majors and whatnot, to me, like Chapo's got a certain ceiling, but you know, consistency or is is what's going to you know play his career. It's just because he's a shot maker, and you know th- that can go really hot and really cold sometimes. I look at Felix and I think that's a guy that's like a tennis star. We mention it all the time. Are you a, a playmaker in hockey or are you a hockey player? Do you know how to do everything? Do you know how to you know play defense, be on top of the puck, shut people down, contribute, score goals? We were just having that conversation about like Monahan earlier. I look at Coronado as a guy who can do the latter. That's a hockey player to me. Ali Asim to me is a tennis player more than just hey I can pull off highlight shots and it looks fantastic and in the right matchups I'm going to win and maybe I can go on a run Felix to me is always going to be in a top four conversation once he gets to that stage but he's not at that stage just yet no he he might have more upside than a lot of the people we're talking about here but he still has to realize that right and like that's why I said Chapo even ahead of Felix because Chapo has just had that extra little bit of success on the tour so far it'll come for Felix I don't think there's any question about that but he hasn't gotten there just yet the other side of it with with Alexiak that I find really interesting is, you know, obviously it all comes down to medals at the Olympics and, and winning gold and silver and all of that. But I was so impressed and just I, I, I took a lot of joy in the swagger she had after winning the relay or finishing silver in the relay with Team Canada. Right. Because she's the anchor in that race. She's coming in last. And OK, gold was out of reach. But she said after the race, right, like when I got in that pool, there was no way, no way. I wasn't touching the wall first for silver, right? Like 0% chance. Yeah, gold's out of gold's out of reach, but I know I'm going to drag us to the silver medal. And just that confidence and that swagger, like, that's awesome. That is so fun. You love to see it in a Canadian athlete. What What's the stereotype about us, right? Oh, we're shy. We like to apologize, you know, don't really like to make a big deal about ourselves. The own the podium ourselves. thing changed all that, right? Like, But you love, it's so great to see it from someone like Penny Alexiak. It's just straight up. Yeah, no, I, I knew I was going to get the job done there. Because it, it takes a generation for things like that to have its impact, right? Because I do think of own the podium, 2010 and all that sort of stuff. The push to, you know, put Canada back on the map for the winter Olympics and, and win that. And they did. And it, it takes time. Like I, I always think of uh, like Gretzky going to California. It's like, Oh, the impact of that. Well, it takes 15 years to see the the return on that investment because kids are watching this and thinking, Oh, that's awesome. I want to play the sport and to see it flourish at the NHL level. It takes that amount of time going back to 2010. 
you want to talk about that that inspired dominance that happened for Team Canada at the Winter Olympics and that investment, obviously, to, to, to make into it. Span that 10 years. And you saw these these athletes now were, what, 11, 8 years old at that time? And yeah. the mentality at that stage, formative years, learning, hey, I'm seeing all these athletes at the top of the podium – this is pretty awesome. This is something that we do. This is who we are. And if you're 8 years old, 11 years old, you can buy into that mentality real easily when the previous 50 years would dictate it hasn't been like that. The Canadian mentality has been what you're mentioning of of being a bit more be you know humble obviously yep. is, you know might be the wrong word, but but not being as boastful about it, not being as publicly confident about it. And now what we've seen in 11 years and what it means moving forward is massive. Yeah, it, it's so cool to watch it play out on the international stage. Yeah, we're getting some good texts on this, kind of who are the star Canadian athletes on the international stage right now in light of the Olympics and Penny Alexiak's performance so far. 650-650 or 960-960. This one says, what about Christine Sinclair? She has to be on this list. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Even at this stage of her career, she's still bagging goals on a regular basis for Canada. Like, it's almost... I, I hear what you're saying. I almost feel like we didn't bring her up just because she it, it's rote with her by now. We expect it. It's like, oh, yeah, Christine Sinclair scored another goal for Canada in a big game. No kidding. Yeah. And another moment for the Olympics, obviously, to, to redeem off of 2012, obviously, to say, like, hey, can we do it again? And it's also a question of, like, staying power, right? She's done it for so long kind of like the NBA voting of, of for MVP. It's like, we're just getting bored with it. Maybe there's the next new thing that we can start to crown already. But you're absolutely right. Uh, Christine Sinclair is in and there. Alfonso Davies is in there. But as you mentioned, like the injury right now. Yeah. I want to read this one, too, because I think it's really interesting. This texture says, Andre DeGrasse could become a big yeah. name again after these Olympics are done. Would one DeGrasse 100-meter medal be bigger than multiple Alexiak swimming medals? Okay, here's well, the it, thing with... Go ahead. It's the same question we have with the Winter Olympics, right? We're like heading into the semifinals or the final with hockey, we go, "Hey, would you trade all the medals we've won for gold yeah, yeah, in yeah. hockey?" If I if I promised you gold medal in the showpiece uh, Summer Olympics, the the hundred meter sprint, as much as it, you know, basketball has a lot of stars, the hundred meter sprint is the, the event. event. The event. It's, it's it's the purity of smart of sport. Am I faster than everyone else in the world? Like, that's the essence of sport. Yeah. And if you win that, that's the conversation. Would you give up all the swing medals, all the skateboarding medals, all whatever Canada wins for Andre DeGrasse or any Canadian to win gold in that? And I think with the 100-meter sprint, there's probably the biggest gap between what a silver medal means and what a gold medal means. You know what I mean? And I don't want to take anything away from the silver medalist in the 100-meter. Yeah. Like, if Andre DeGrasse wins that, that's awesome. But... The recognition and the renown of winning the gold in the 100-meter sprint at the Olympics is unlike anything else, right? Like, you get to go around calling yourself the fastest man in the world for four years after that, right? And nobody can say anything to you because it's true. So, you know, in, in almost every other event, like, look, you obviously always want to win gold, but silver is an incredible accomplishment as well. It's still an incredible accomplishment in the 100-meter, but, man, if, you, if Andre de Grasse wins gold in that event... Yeah, he probably does shoot to the top of these rankings just because that feat is still so prestigious, so important for the Olympics. It's the easiest one people can relate to, right? Because 
because strongest is so hard. It's 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 a yeah. lifting mass weight is just it, it boggles the mind sometimes. And world's strongest man or woman, it just like it, it can get lost in the shuffle sometimes. Just speed. People, it's easy to like understand and relate and. You know, people race for the bus or something like that. It's like, ah, oh, I'm like Andre de Grasse chasing down that. He uh, would have got it. He would have got bus. it. Yeah, it, it, it's easy to see. Uh, Vic Nazar, Jamie Dodd here talking about most dominant Canadian athletes right now, or best Canadian athletes. Uh, this might be cheating, but does Freddie Freeman count? Like, I'm willing to fudge. I know Dual citizen mean. and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I'm willing to fudge it, but I don't think he's in the class. Of Probably not. About. Probably not, but I saw the stat the other day. And I was, I was like, just mind-blown. It had been 35 at-bats since Freddie Freeman had a swing and a miss. And I don't just mean, like, swinging strikeout. I mean, 35 at-bats. I'm not sure how many pitches he saw over that course, but you can imagine it's quite a lot. That he swung and didn't make contact with the ball. Like, that is incredible. Uh, and and for, wild. For for a for a month stretch, I suppose you could put him in that in that conversation of best athlete. But traditionally, we you know staying power and and how long you're doing it for longevity matters in this conversation. Uh, he probably doesn't belong in that conversation. But I saw that and I thought this is one of the like the achievements of the the MLB season. Yeah, and you know to get in this conversation that we're having, you got to be among the best in your sport, right? You got to be at the very top of the pyramid in your sport. And Freddie Freeman, really good player, but he's not there. He's not one of the five or 10 best yeah. players in baseball. That is an incredible accomplishment though. To go it, that it, it, long it, without a swinging strike, especially in this era where there are so many strikeouts, pitchers are so good at missing bats. It, it reminded me of that Joey Votto stat of like the first time he popped yes. out to first base. Uh, what was it? Thirteen years into his career, never something like that. First yeah. base. just unbelievable. And this thirty-five at bats for Freddie Freeman. Wanted to at least uh, highlight how good he was. Uh, a lot of people are sending us breaking news into the uh, text message inbox uh, about a trade between New Jersey and uh, San Jose. Uh, uh, a very small trade, a minor massive trade. trade, massive we're, trade. Sean, Sean from Waterloo. We're not breaking news on on, on a Christian Jaros and Nick Merkley trade. So. Uh, thanks for the text. We always appreciate it. Sportsnet no. 650, breaking news. Greg, we're not doing this. We're not. We're not breaking down Christian Daros and Nick Merkley trades. Just, it's not a thing. Uh, we got to We got to save all of our breaking news sounders for Wednesday for the free agent frenzy, man. We get. We can't oh, yeah. be blowing them right now. I'm pumped. So excited. So Wednesday, uh, we'll be here with you uh, on our airwaves here. Uh, breaking it all down uh, and on TV part of signing season, you'll see Elliot Friedman. You'll see Chris Johnson. You'll also see Frank Saravelli uh, on our uh, TV channels. Uh, if, if you liked of, that, uh, if you liked that little breaking news sander, we just played Wednesday is the show for you. You're going to get a lot of it. A lot of use out of that. You're going to hear it a lot on Wednesday. For sure. Uh, are and Jamie Dodd. I, I, sorry. I didn't want to wrap up the Olympic conversation. What to you has been the best uh, moment outside of Canadians you know, winning medals and, and having success. What's been the best moment so far for you? So there's a there's a couple that have caught a lot of attention, right? Like the Tunisian swimmer who won the gold and, and could barely believe it and his celebration. That was a really, really cool moment. I mean, it's so cheesy because, you know, it's the Olympics and it's corporate and it's all about money and should it even we be happening? Like, like there's all these questions, but then you see that guy celebrating. You're like, okay, this yeah. is awesome. But so like, that was really cool. Especially from a country like Tunisia, right? You expect America, you expect China, you expect Russia, the traditional, like, yep. 
countries that just dominate at these Olympics. Australia, right, in the water. And then Tunisia, out of nowhere, wins this. And you're thinking, that's cool. Like, that, like that's, that's what the Olympics are about. The uh, the Australian swimming coach last night going wild after his swimmer <laughs> oh, won yeah. the gold like that is an instant iconic moment. But just to to kind of touch on what you were just mentioning there, Bick, you know, a couple of just random times I've turned on the TV. Like over the weekend, I, I caught the end of one of the cycling events, and a guy from Ecuador was like running away with the event, cruised to the gold medal, second gold medal ever in the history of Ecuador at the Olympic Games. Like, that's incredible. You're only the second person ever in your country's history to win a gold medal. Totally random moment. I'm not a cycling guy. I don't really have a rooting interest in Ecuador or anything, but, like, that's so cool. And then I was just checking Twitter today. Someone, a a woman in weightlifting, I believe her name is Hidalin Diaz, has won the first ever gold medal in any event for the Philippines. Like, that blows my mind. How cool would that be to have that honor i am the first person to bring home the gold from my country so that's something i've been getting into like i i'm gonna try to do a little research and see are there any other first time for their country gold medalists coming up at these olympics because i don't know what it is that moment is really resonating with me this time she should uh come speak to the vancouver canucks first time for everything uh, <laughs> uh my favorite moment so far did you see the, the the start of the triathlon? I hadn't seen it till last night. A couple of listeners sent it to me on Twitter. The start of the triathlon was a hilarious mess. And I know, look, we're talking about sport and winning medals and all this sort of stuff. The Olympic triathlon, they're in, they're, you know, the, the broadcast boat is like in front of them and like, you know, panning by all the athletes and they're putting the cryon up on the screen of like, here's this great British athlete. And they just started the race when the boat is in the way of a bunch of people trying to get into the water. So half the athletes jumped in ready to go, and half of them are like, where do you want me to go? There's a massive boat in front of me I'm waiting <laughs> for it to move. It is hilarious. Just jump online, check it out. Uh, you train I, I, your I, whole life, I, and I then you get to the moment at the Olympics, and you're ready to dive in, and oh, there's a it's boat so 10 great. feet in front of me. Who knew? But now, mind you, like they did stop and restart it all to, to get it all sorted out. But it was just amazing amazing visuals to see this boat in the middle it's like and we're off and we're probably going to restart because there's a boat in the way so so good so good um i gotta throw one more out here and i don't think i don't know if this qualifies as best maybe funniest worst i don't know but i mean a lot of people probably saw this the incredibly incredibly gnarly accident that the uh, peru skateboarder took where he kind of went backwards into a metal pole in a very sensitive, sensitive area. Like that, I, I, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners had a similar reaction watching this. Like that, that hurt me at a visceral level to watch the replay, but I also couldn't stop watching it. It, it was so horrific and so awkward. You, you, you had to watch it, but oh my goodness, I, I could feel it. I could feel all of that pain. I did not care for it. Rick Nazar and Jamie Dodd here with you, uh, filling in for Rintoul and Sermon. Uh, a couple of hockey questions coming in. Uh, into our text message inbox. Uh, so we'll get into the, the winners and losers so far this off season. Uh, for me, you know, I, I find it easy to say Columbus is a winner just because I think we're looking at, hey, three first round picks, they, they recouped a bunch of value. I, I think by default, you have to put them in there, but I'm kind of not convinced on it. 
the thing is, it's always so much easier to be a winner when you're starting the rebuilding process, right? Like, okay, yeah. you, moved the, you moved those deals and you got good assets in return. That's awesome. Like, yeah, they're a winner. They did what they had to do, but that's also the easy part, right? That That's the part that most teams can handle. So they're a winner, but kind of a provisional winner. Like, let's see what you do with it down the road first. It, it, it's it's the, the academic. They, they, they've won that part of it, the practicality of it. I, like this is one of those ones that we have to revisit in a couple of years. It reminds me of when the Canucks traded for like Nick Goldobin and Jonathan Dolan. It's like great job. It's like well, yeah. okay, let's... you won the trade deadline. Yeah, you won like, the that, trade. That deadline, was the message but, at the time. Yeah, but, but you, you, in hindsight, you lost the trade. Like again, good process, bad result. I feel like Columbus were appraising the process, but you know, process doesn't hang banners up. It's results that hang no. banners up. And again, this is these are the first steps of a, a long process. So yeah, okay, hey, you got to nail those, and that's good. It's also the easiest part of the job, for sure. Uh, who's your next winner? You know, I, you could put Buffalo in a similar category, right? So far, getting getting rid of Ristolainen and getting a good good assets back in return for Rasmus Ristolainen, I think, is a really good deal. They made the Sam Reinhart deal as well. You know, it's still too early to say with Jack Eichel, but it seems like they're playing it correctly and they're doing a good job of using their leverage. But as I said, that kind of falls into a very similar category sure. as, uh, as Columbus does. They didn't conform to the pressure. And, and that's why I kind of say you held on to the assets so far and it looks like you're waiting for your trade. And how often do with these, you know, superstar level trades, um, even in Buffalo, you can even just mention Ryan O'Reilly, right? It just, you kind of caved and you took what was best available. They're waiting for the best offer rather than what's the best available. You know, the other team that I would put in there, and this is more of a, a team that's going for it and trying to improve for the now and not the future, is the Florida Panthers, right? Like, I really like the Sam Reinhart acquisition mm-hmm. for Florida. I think that's a really good move. Slots in. Plus, perfectly. they locked up Sam Bennett today, four yep. years, 4.4. I have some questions about that deal. Like you're really betting heavily on the 10 game sample size that he had in Florida rather than all the previous seasons he's played in Calgary. So I have a few questions about that deal, but I will say you look at the recent track record of young, youngish guys going to Florida and kind of rediscovering their games like Carter Verhage last year, Anthony Duclair, Sam Bennett got there. Maybe they can give Sam Reinhart even a little bit of a boost. So I like what they're doing. I love being bold and going out and getting Sam Reinhart. You know, you took a big step forward last year. Don't just rest on your laurels. Go add to it. That's what Florida's trying to do. I like it. And at some point, you, like, you've got to show that franchise. And more importantly, yep. you've got to show Alex Barkov. Hey, we're in this. And, and Huberto's two years away uh, from UFA as well. We're in this. We're making investments. We want to compete. And we want you to be centerpieces of it. And, and that's, uh, you know, next offseason free agency is loaded with talent. And Barkov, you got to convince in a year, uh, hey, stay here. We're building something special. We'll get into more of that conversation and a lot more. Donovan Bennett joining us in just a second uh, here on Rintoul and Sermon on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Welcome back. Rintoul and Sermon away this week. Big shout out to Scott and Karen taking some well-deserved time off. Bick Nazar and Jamie Dodd filling in for the week. So if you like us, send us a text. 650, 650, 960, 960. If you don't, send us a text anyway. We appreciate uh, all the feedback. Uh, and your questions and your comments uh, into our feedback channels. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, we, we didn't really get to do losers so far this offseason. 
Uh, but, you know, Edmonton's one that kind of sticks out to me. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you know in our pre-show chat, you mentioned Philly. I don't know, man. Uh, I kind of like what they've done. The the, the Ristolainen deal is the, the, the headliner and, and the risky one. I'm a big fan. I'm a like massive Ryan Ellis fan. To me, yeah. that's just the right type of demon they needed. Professional moves the pucks. You know, you look at his underlying numbers. A guy who gets very underrated for his overall defensive play, and then just that booming shot. To me, one of my favorite demon in the league. Love that acquisition, and I think it kind of ensures your Ristolainen uh, acquisition as well. Yeah, you're right, and maybe I'm being a little too harsh on them because I'm a big Ryan Ellis fan as well. I actually don't hate the Cam Atkinson deal sending uh, Jake Jakub Voracek the other way either, so I, I don't mind that deal for them. It's just tough for me to get past the Rasmus Ristolainen deal. Like that's right. tough. It, it cancels out a lot of the good for me. It, it's kind of their Ekman Larson deal, right? Of taking a bet because the the perception of those two players is get them out of these markets, and you'll see how dedicated they are. And you'll see how you'll see the real game start to flourish all over again. What's interesting also about uh, Philadelphia, as along with a bunch of other teams, I think you can throw New Jersey in this, Boston, Carolina, uh, Calgary. What are they going to do in goal? Like backup goal. That's tank, a big question, yeah. right? And we we've already got some texts already into the uh, 960 960 inbox. Obviously, Jacob Markstrom's there, but like, how do you solidify the backup spot as well? And you know, that to me for Philadelphia is one interesting part because I, I think the world of Carter Hart, but what they do to, you know, maybe if he slips up, how do you make sure your season doesn't get submarined all over again? Yeah, they're they're one of those teams, and pretty much most teams fall into this category now, right? The where you want to have a really solid backup, a really dependable backup. You know, even looking earlier in the show, we were talking about what the Canucks are going to do if they move Holtby, and, you know, we got the text in, well, what about Mikey DiPietro? Well, Canucks aren't ready to rely on him as a backup, right? He still needs more time in the AHL, and the Flyers are right there too. Like, yeah, they they still believe in Carter Hart, but you got to have someone dependable there to back him up just in case. Uh, keep your thoughts coming in. 650, 650. We'll talk to Donovan Bennett in just a second. Uh, we'll, we'll pitch him the, the losers of the offseason. And I, I think the big one, and it's so unfortunate – uh, because they were coming off such a positive run there uh, to the Stanley Cup final. But it, it's hard not to put Montreal into this conversation as well. Yeah, Montreal, and I mean, you could throw Chicago in there, right? Like, for off-the-ice reasons. To, yeah. On the ice, too, depending on what you think of the Seth Jones deal. But another team that's just, man, they, like bad look after bad look after serious misstep after serious misstep for the Chicago Blackhawks so far this offseason. And the ambitions that you know, Montreal showed last offseason, they go out and get Josh Anderson. They go out and get Tyler Toffoli. And these these deals work immediately. Toffoli in the regular season. And you saw Josh Anderson's influence physically uh, in the playoffs. Probably could have scored more, and I think they would have wished he got more. But you know, you saw his presence. The, the reason Mark Bergman goes out and signs him, it works. And you think, hey, that ambition gets rewarded with a, a successful run. And then to back it up with their draft pick on Friday night, it's just like, really, this is what we're doing here? And there was a lot of explaining necessary that really didn't land well. And, and you know, the, the thing that they had prepared was their statement, uh, the, the press release, but not you know, prepared to answer really questions thereafter. And even the press release to me, I thought was 
poorly done. And by and large, uh, I, I thought it was uh, a awful, awful look by Montreal over the weekend. And it, it, it really just soured the whole experience of the NHL draft and that whole week uh, with Seattle coming in. It just it, it's something the league doesn't need in general. That's uh, Donovan Bennett now who joins us uh, from Sportsnet. You can always catch his work at sportsnet.ca and uh, on the television as well. Donovan, just your thoughts on, on what Montreal uh, did in the first round in the draft? Sadly, I was surprised that I was surprised, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that totally. totally. Uh, that's somewhat antithetical of a statement, but I mean, like we've recently had conversations about maybe you might want to, you know, vet this traffic a little bit more if they're in a situation that isn't ideal. Maybe the, you know, cost-benefit analysis, we need to, you know, increase the risk quotient in terms of, yes, they're a good player and, yes, they're good value at this part of the draft. But no, from a PR standpoint, and really just from a what do you want to be about as a franchise and as a league standpoint, it's not worth it. And because of that, because we've had these conversations and because these decisions have been so scrutinized, you had a prospect who came out and proactively said, listen, I'm going to remove myself from this, no matter what the individual teams say. Whether or not you believe it was sincere, it was certainly prudent for them to get in front of this. And then what happens is Montreal goes out and disregards that request and, and, and then somewhat defiantly when pressed about it, saying you can't remove yourself from the NHL draft, well, apparently you can't inject logic into this process because the most maturity that was shown in terms of how this should have been handled was the person who showed great immaturity and put himself in this scenario and, let's not forget, committed a sex crime. So I, I just can't imagine that a group of adult people in a war room at the beginning of a draft, riding the high of playing so well and, and getting to the Stanley Cup Finals and going into the next season with house money because they played so well. And, and really coming off the high of the fact that the expansion draft went in their favor. For them to say, yeah, let's just burn all of that goodwill capital and make this choice. It doesn't make much sense. They didn't reach out to the victim in the case to find out how she was feeling. They didn't really put in any parameters proactively on how they were going to go on this journey of learning, as they say, with the prospect and their organization. They really didn't do anything other than say, well, he apologized. That's good enough for us. And it's 2021. That's not good enough for anybody anymore. And Donovan, you know, obviously a lot of the blowback here has been directed at Montreal, but do, do we need to ask some questions about the NHL and their role in this as well? Because, you know, as you said, technically there's no there's no mechanism for him to withdraw from the draft. Does the league look need to look at doing something in the future for addressing this these types of situations proactively? As you say, giving teams sort of some parameters to work with rather than just leaving it up to the individual teams? Well, and, you know, Bill Daly just kind of moonwalked away from the, you know, building on fire and said, well, you know, 
their choice. They have the right to make the pick, which is true. But you know, don't then beat the public over the head with hockey is for everyone and here's our declaration of principles and what the game stands for and all oh, this is such a great sport where character is the most important thing. Like you can't do two things at once and say that you're proactively cleaning up the game and making it more inclusive and wanting all types of people to feel like hockey is welcome, but then also just have a blind eye when teams can't help themselves from making terrible decisions. Sometimes as board of governors and as a league office, you need to save franchises and executives and decision makers from themselves. And you put in governance all the time to make sure people aren't making short-sighted decisions that are going to negatively impact not just them, but the entire league. And this is a case where this story on draft day is not just not good for the Montreal Canadiens, it's not good for the entire league. Quick fact, it's not good for the sport because we could be talking about a lot of things right now. The fact that hockey continues to, in many ways, have a toxic culture and that often lets women be the victim of it, that's not good. That's not good for business. That's not good for anybody. And we know, like, this, this, is, this is business that, one, women are more than 50% of the population in North America at this moment in time too, that they are the drivers in terms of how disposable income is used in home. So if you still want people to feel good about your brand, to buy, buy tickets and season tickets, to put kids into youth hockey, then you have to make sure that their association with the sport is one that's positive and not negative. And I'm not sure any female who feels like that was a positive decision by the NHL to even have the player available to be drafted. And let's not forget, it wasn't specifically against a woman, but we're talking about you know, sexual violence. We are still in the midst of a scandal with the Chicago Blackhawks, an organization that Bergevin was a part of at the time. So we haven't even put one sexual scandal to bed before we've opened up another one. Nobody can argue that that is in any way neutral or good for the NHL. That's terrible. So, yes, they do own part of that. Should they assume that their executives are more savvy? I suppose. But we've got too much evidence now to prove the other one. The guy who does everything on Sportsnet, Donovan Bennett, uh, writer, producer, host, and everything, joining us here on uh, Rintoul and Sermon, but it's Bacon Nazar and Jamie Dodd filling in uh, right now. Uh, the Olympics are ongoing right now. We were having a conversation about Penny Alexiak, and we always get reminded, you know, every four years of, hey, who is the best Canadian athlete when the, the Olympics come up, or every two years when the Winter Olympics come up, and we start talking about it. But for you, uh, is she, you know, putting hockey players aside from the conversation because they can dominate it so easily – with McDavid and Crosby. Is, is she tops right now just because she's hauling in medals every time? Well, she's certainly the most decorated. And let's not forget, she's probably going to have, barring injury and boredom, have one more games because the next games is only three years away and probably another games after that. So we could be talking about her medal count getting into the teens, assuming she stays on this course and assuming she's just not pushed and overtaken by some of the other young, talented females that we're producing in this country in the pool. But I have to say, if you are 
a brand and you're thinking, okay, I want to make an association with a Olympic athlete this year. Certainly DeGrasse is in the conversation and to some extent Aaron Brown because the 100 meter is the marquee event of any games. And they're going to be in the competition to make the final and be one of the fastest eight. But in terms of just the celebrity factor, the likability, and just the tenacious ability to compete in the sport, I think Penny's there. You talk to scientists about what is actually the most difficult in ruling sport, and they would say it's actually water polo. So in terms of finding the best athlete, I guess we should just find who the best Canadian water polo uh, player is at any given time. I think Christine Sinclair is the most iconic athlete, and if she's able to get another Olympic medal, I think that puts her on a Mount Rushmore with, you know, a, a Gretzky, a Terry Fox, uh, Donovan Bailey, you can fill out the rest of the list as you will. But I think right now the most dominant Canadian athlete is Penny Alexiak until proven otherwise. And Donovan, I was saying earlier in the show to Beck, you know, the thing that really impressed me after the relay performance was the confidence and the swagger that she had on display in the interview right after winning the silver medal. Silver, silver medal. I know you got a chance to catch up with uh, Penny Alexiak shortly before she left for Tokyo. Did that sense of swagger and confidence come across when you were talking to her as well? It's funny because yes and no, and she's still a teenager, and so she's still naturally, you know, a little bit, um, you know, inclusive and not always as bubbly and outgoing. But the confidence and swagger was about the collective. Listen, we have to remember that the hardest place to train for the Olympics leading up to them was in Canada because our restrictions around COVID were so high and for so long. Our Canadian athletes who train abroad actually had an easier time than the ones who came home and got stuck at home. So for a long period, she wasn't able to train. And when you look at the time between Rio and now, there was a period where there was so much expectations and pressure on her that she stopped competing and just got away and went on vacation because Everything was scrutinized as to how is this going to play out in Tokyo? How are you going to do even more than the record-setting thing you did at your first international meet? So I think she felt a lot of pressure, but that positive swagger that you're referencing, it was about the collective because she felt, listen, we haven't been able to train and compete at the top meets with the rest of the world. Yes, that's a hindrance. But also, they have no idea how good we are and how hard we've worked to get back. And so there was a bit of swagger that the world is sleeping on us. We've got a big surprise. I hope they're not expecting anything from us. I hope they think it's going to be Japan, Great Britain, Australia, United States, those traditional countries on the podium all the time. And then we just come through and steal a bunch of gold. And thus far... That's pretty much what's happened. It's still super early in the aquatic schedule, but we've already taken a fair share of medals from some names that weren't expected. Penny obviously was, but I love the fact that she post-race was so confident because she had that quiet confidence before she boarded the plane to Tokyo. Donovan Bennett joining us, Spick Nazar and Jamie Dodd here with you. Uh, I imagine keeping a close eye on the Olympics. Uh, are you worried for Team USA basketball? You know, we, we saw what happened in the prelims and then they lose to France. I'm not worried for them because if 
Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard and Draymond Green don't have an Olympic medal, I think their lives are going to be just fine. I'm not losing any sleep over whether or not Greg Popovich is going to add to his Hall of Fame career with a gold medal. I'm not worried, and I actually think it should be a reference point, and we should retroactively look at the failure, and failure is a pretty dramatic word, but the inability for Team Canada to qualify through new eyes because for so long our conversation was we've got so many pros. As long as we get our pros together, we've got a shot. We just need to get our pros to play. And I think what we've seen thus far with this American team, which has a losing record in their last eight competitive matches, which is just crazy to say out loud, is that it's not just about getting NBA players. Because the Americans still, even though LeBron's not there, Steph Curry's not there, they still by far have the most uh, NBA players and the best NBA players. We're talking about France and, and how good they are and how far they've come. They've got five NBA players on their team. The Americans have five all-stars virtually on the floor all of the time. I think we have to understand that basketball specifically is such a relationship sport. And the rules for FIBA are different, and that's an adjustment. But so much of the communication in basketball is nonverbal. It's feel. And when you've got countries who have players who not only are invested, but they've played together for so long in a system from so, for so long and in a sporting culture for so long, that is a tangible advantage that they have. And whether you're talking about Australia or France, most of these players are not just playing together now. They've played together at every step of the way in the youth ages, in many cases, on club teams moving up. And that's something that's tough to replicate for the United States, tough to replicate for Canada. So you need those pros playing together year over year over year. The Redeem team, if you remember, that was all of the great superstars coming back together. Jerry Colangelo said, you guys have to commit for multiple summers for us to get back there. They, they returned to dominance, and since that has fallen by the wayside a little bit, and we're seeing what that looks like on a high stage. But I think we have to understand that everyone has pros now. Everyone has multiple high-level players, whether it's in Europe or impact players in the NBA. So that's not the only part of the conversation. Playing together, having that familiarity and understanding is really, really important. And so, yes, when Drew Holiday and Devin Booker and Chris Middleton literally just walk off a plane and walk on the court, you're going to be at a sincere competitive disadvantage. Just sticking in the world of basketball for, for a couple more minutes here, Donovan. I know you're getting geared up for the NBA draft later this week. I believe last year was the first time in a while that no Canadians were selected in the NBA draft. Are we going to see that trend reversed and see a couple of Canadians picked this year? I believe you are. I don't necessarily know if we're going to return to the streak of having Canadians picked in the lottery, but I'm certainly uh, of full, full faith that we're going to have a couple Canadians picked in, in both rounds. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got three, even up to four Canadians picked. We're actually going to be profiling uh, Eugene Murray, a young player who had a great career at Oregon, uh, entered the draft and is pretty workmanlike, do-everything, has a great size-to-skill ratio. So we're going to have a feature coming out on Sportsnet um, tomorrow about – 
his journey, and we're going to follow him throughout the experience on draft night and have a feature coming out next week, August 3rd, about what the night is like, whether or not he's a priority free agent or you know has the experience of getting his name picked. But regardless of what the number is this year, when you look at the next two years with the main you know exciting name being Elijah Fisher, there's multiple players in the next couple of classes that could be legit lottery picks. And when you're talking about Elijah Fisher, you know, the top three pick is not out of the realm of possibility. So we might see another long streak of Canadians vying for their names picked first overall in the coming years. He is uh, Donovan Bennett. Follow him on Twitter, uh, at Donovan Bennett, and check out all his work uh, for Sportsnet. Uh, we'll see who the Raptors pick, and we'll, we'll ask you about it next week as well. So thanks a lot, DB. We'll, we'll chat soon. Can't wait. Thanks, guys. That is uh, Donovan Bennett uh, joining us here. On uh, Rintoul and Sermon, filling in, though, is uh, Bick Nazar and Jamie Dodd. A lot of reaction coming into our text message inbox. We were messaging, or we were asking Donovan about uh, the Montreal pick, and a lot of reaction coming in. Just, haven't you guys ever made mistakes? People deserve second chances and all this sort of stuff. Nobody is against second chances here. We're talking about the pathways uh, towards redemption. And in this scenario, Montreal just incentivized someone to not take any sort of uh, path to reconciliation by saying, hey, all that thing, the, the things that you did, which, by the way, you have paid a price for, but mentally, are you still at a development stage where you're, you're considering what you did? And the kid himself is saying, hey, I'm not at that space now. He's just been incentivized to not take those steps to remedy all these things. And then you throw in the fact that, hey, look, this is an organization that has thought about bringing in Slava Voyanov, that have been tied to other to Tony D'Angelo, yeah. all these other things. Is this the organization that's going to follow through on the path that this kid wants to take himself? Well, and especially given how they rolled it out, right? They did not roll it out and give you a sense of confidence that they're taking this really Their statement seriously. started off with promising young player. It, had, it, yeah. it didn't acknowledge anything that happened, and that's the issue. And I get it. Hey, this is a competitive environment, all this sort of stuff, and they're doing it for best player available. Yeah, okay, but you got to understand, if you had a statement ready to go because you were making this pick, you should have known why you're making the statement. Well, and as we talked about with Donovan there, right? And I'm glad he brought up, you know, Bill Daly kind of just getting out of Dodge and not not answering the question at all when asked about it. Like, because it is a competitive environment, it's a zero-sum environment for these NHL teams. If the NHL wants to avoid situations like this in the future, they have to get involved proactively, right? Rather than just crossing your fingers and hoping the, your, your member teams will take the sensible course of action. Bick Nazar, Jamie Dodd, we will uh, depart from uh, Calgary. Big show on the way with you then. Uh, we'll continue on Sportsnet 650, filling in for Rintoul and Sermon. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. There it is. Waiting for that beat to drop. Bick Nazar, Jamie Dodd, here on Sportsnet 650. You want to chime in? 650-650 with your thoughts. Always do so. Some people asking us uh, our thoughts on the OEL trade. Marcus and Gibson giving his take. He can prove us all wrong with a strong camp and to start the season. Uh, I, I do want to see what OEL looks like when uh, training camp rolls around. You know, you've watched a handful of Arizona games. It hasn't been good the last couple of years, obviously, for him. 
and uh, remains to be seen what he does. Obviously, it's the big acquisition that Jim Benning made uh, to kick off the NHL draft. Uh, as far as the rest of the picks the Canucks made, uh, Todd Harvey will uh, be talking about that when he joins the People Show later on this evening with uh, Randeep and Sat, uh, so the director of uh, scouting for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, you'll hear his thoughts later on today. As far as uh, the trade itself, my initial reaction was, look, it's it's high-risk and it can be high reward. Yep. But I think that we're, we're – the, the one thing I think with Jim Benning, what he did over the weekend, and, and, and I'm not excusing him of the risk or anything like that, but the one thing he did is he got rid of all the dead weight. And we started the show talking about hey, you know, who, who absorbed a lot of pressure. Well, Jim Benning had a lot of pressure already on him. I don't think he got any more. Travis Green, though, is kind of skated by for you know three, four seasons now of, well, what is this team really when you have Louis Erickson, when you have Jay Beagle, when you have Brandon Sutter, when you're allocating this much money to those guys, it's hard to make up the difference. Well, guess what? There's no more dead weight on this team anymore. Not really, no. I mean, you know, We'll see about Oliver Ekman Larson in a year or two. If he's not able to have that kind of bounce back, then yeah, people will be looking at him as dead weight. You know, you still got the Longo cap recapture, but that's only three million dollars. So you're right. The the horribly inefficient and underperforming players have for the most part been cleared out now from the Canucks team. Okay, you know what it kind of reminds me of? Um this feels like this uh, look, I, I'm not calling Jim Benning, Michael Corleone, or anything like that, okay? But here's, because, you know, Godfather, he's, Michael took care of everything and, and and was great for the family in theory. But, like, you know that scene at the end of Godfather, or near the end, it, it, it's it's a famous baptism scene, right? Of course, yeah. It, one, of, one, of the great, one of the great cinematic moments in, in cinema history. And, and to me, like, Jim Benning kind of this weekend took care of, of family business. As far as like, hey, there's these dead weights on the on the Vancouver Canucks and and how do I just solve this problem? He he just like went up and like this guy gone, this guy gone, this guy gone, this guy gone. Vertan and Beagle Roussel, uh they're all just gone. Erickson, the, the the biggest one of them all, all just gone. It's just it, it it was unbelievable. Just one fell swoop, done with it. Now, hey, look, there's risk involved with Oliver Ekman Larson and all this sort of stuff, but that's kind of what he did. Like, you know, Greg, he, okay, here's what I need right now, Greg. I, I, I wonder if we can like recreate that moment here in The Godfather. Greg, just give me some Godfather music here. There it is. This is the one. James Elmer Benning. Do you renounce the contracts of Louis Erickson? And Louis Erickson scores on the rebound! Jay Beagle. Beagle scores! Jay Beagle has the icebreaker! Antoine Roussel. Tips it to the goal. Adam got it. Driving the net. Then it's through the crease and Roussel scores! Jake Vertanen. Gets it in front for Vertanen. He scores! Shotgun Jake finds the back of the net. I think so. And all of their works? Yeah, it, you know, it was obviously difficult. And all of their pomps? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, Vancouver Canucks fans, will you be free of bad contracts? Yeah, like, you know, I guess, you know. That's what he's done. They're all gone. He took care of family business in one day. And yeah, look, the Ekman Larson one remains to be seen if it works out to be bad. But all the complaints of contracts we've had for four seasons, Jamie, 
five seasons with Erickson. Gone in one weekend. I love the Ben and Clips in that in that beautiful little piece that you just that just created. The Ben and Clips, you know, the 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 discrepancy between the seriousness of your questions and then yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, look, it, it's so it's, good. It's, it's so Michael good. Corleone at the at, at, at the front of it at the baptism. There it is. Do you renounce these contracts? Done. It came with yeah. a cost of ninth overall pick and a future second, but they are done. And that's and like the, the encouraging part of this team right now is. You don't have anyone dragging you behind. You know, we'll see what happens with Ekman Larson, but you know, as soon as they move out Braden Holpe, it's a pretty interesting roster all of a sudden. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And just think if you had gone back, and I know there was uh, a Twitter account that had kind of predicted almost shockingly sim- a similar trade a few weeks ago, but just think about trying to convince the average Canucks fan that, hey, not only are they going to trade all of Beagle, Roussel, and Erickson without retaining any salary, but they're going to do it in the same deal. Like, it's hard to even wrap your mind around idea that they got rid of all of that money in one fell swoop. Came at a high cost. There's no doubt about that. The ninth overall pick, that's a big deal for this team. The risk they're taking on with OEL, that's a big deal for this team going forward. But, you know, it's such a big deal. It's hard to wrap your mind around all of the ramifications of it. But when you step back, it's like, wow, they really traded all three of those guys that for a long time we thought were untradeable, didn't retain any money. They did it in one deal. We'll, we'll talk to Harmon Dial in just a second. And it, it's already been made up the point of like, hey, Connor Garland's the underrated part of this deal. I kind of think the underrated part of this deal is the money is gone. It, it, the, like these memories of Louis Erickson scoring own goals and, you know, the, the little things and Jay Beagle winning face. I was like, all that are just memories now. You don't have to look forward to that at training camp and envisioning roles of these guys. It's, it's done. And th- there's still things to do. You gotta, you got, you got to bring in a fourth line center. You still got to trade Nate Schmidt and Brayton Holpe, but a, a lot of uh, the inefficiencies on the roster have been uh, shipped out. Let's ask Carmen dial about it uh, from the athletic in Vancouver. You can read his work uh, there and also follow him on Twitter at Harmon Dial 2. Uh, Harmon, I, I was just making the point that this weekend, these past 72, 96 hours, Jim Benning uh, settled all family business and just got rid of all the bad money. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, what a, uh, what a way to do it. And when one fell uh, swoop, I mean, just one of the most complex trades um, I've ever seen. Just so many layers to it. Um, and And the other... You know, significant point obviously is um, it wasn't just a cap dump, but you know you have the ninth overall pick pick involved. You have um, an excellent top six forward and Connor Garland coming back, and then sort of I guess the elephant in the room, the big question mark. Um, and I think the one piece of it that's going to determine the success of this trade um, is Oliver Ekman Larson, or more specifically, um, his potential capability to, to live up to. Uh, his contract, uh, as obviously he's going to be owed $7.26 million for the next um, six years. Um, this trade just feels like a high-risk, high-reward home run swing that the Canucks made. I mean, in the short term, this is going to pay uh, tremendous dividends. And when I kind of look at this trade, um, it almost mirrors the acceleration phase of the 2019 offseason, right? That was um, a year where the Canucks became significantly better biting at by adding a high-end top six forward. And in in that year, it was JT Miller. This time, it's Connor Garland. And again, similarity there with shipping out your your first-round pick. 
Um, and then a defenseman who upgrades the blue line now, but comes with a risky contract back then it was Tyler Myers. Now it's OEL. Um, and so it's going to be really fascinating, but no question that over the next, you know, one, two, three years that, um, this is the kind of trade that, um, is going to really accelerate the Canucks' timeline. And, um, when you add uh, a piece like Garland to the top end of your roster up front, I think it really, um, solidifies Vancouver's, Vancouver's top, uh, top nine as, um, as a formidable unit. Um, the back end, I mean, Ekman Larson's contract is definitely um, a, an outsized risk long term, but in the short term, he's going to, I think, bounce back and be a credible top four defenseman for this team. And then you talk about the internal improvement that I expect. Like, I think Quinn Hughes is going to be a lot better. Um, you're going to have Elias Pettersson hopefully healthier and better than he was in the first half of the season. Uh, power play one, which was such a key cog for getting them, getting them uh, into the playoffs uh, in 2019-20, that should bounce back. So I think when you factor in the internal um, improvement with with Garland and OEL, the two pieces that they brought in, and, and just how you reallocated all of that uh, inefficient money, um, it definitely uh, makes the Canucks uh, a lot better uh, heading into next season. And Harmon, I want to dig into both of the two major pieces coming back to the Canucks, obviously Garland and OEL. But let's start with Connor Garland. I know there's a lot of excitement uh, that the Canucks are getting a forward of his quality. For listeners and fans who you know don't necessarily know a ton about Connor Garland's game, what are the Canucks getting uh, out of Garland? They're getting a really high-end offensive producer. I mean, to be scoring at what was essentially 65-point pace prorated over 82 games, um, on an offensively inept Arizona team that plays a uh, tight defensive structure um, is is really remarkable. And, you know, Garland is a little bit undersized at 5'10", but uh, kind of like Nils Hoaglander, he has some edge and bite to him. He's pretty good along the walls, and um, he makes his uh, he makes his hay in, in front of the net, and he loves to battle in the hard area, areas of the ice. Very clever in terms of finding the soft spots of... Uh, of the opposition's um, of the opposition's defensive coverage, and he's not an electric straight line skater, and I think that's part of the reason why he was such a draft uh, late round draft gem for the Coyotes. But he's got exceptional uh, edge work, and so when he's making plays out of the corner, a uh, very elusive player. Um, he's got even got some playmaking upside to him. I know he's working very hard on uh, improving what's already a pretty pretty decent finishing skill set from in tight. Um, so Garland is just going to come in and I think, you know, few are going to be happier about his acquisition than Bo Horvat, who finally now gets a dynamic high end, um, top of lineup forward who should be able to provide lots of dynamic offense. Um, and again, he adds a little bit of, you know, snarl. And, and so there are a lot of elements that I really love about Garland's game. I'm a big fan of the player myself, and I, I think he's going to be a big hit for Vancouver fans, and he is going to work. But you mentioned the Bo Horvat aspect of it. I'm not worried about Connor Garland producing. I'm worried about how the those two players mesh, because I don't necessarily look at Bo Horvat and I think distributor. I think of he's going to be a goal scorer. He's going to be forceful to get to the front of the net. Is the pairing of them two going to work together? It's going to be one of the most talented players he's had, but is the pairing going to work? It's a really good question, and you know the the one aspect that I was thinking about was 
And I'm not sure if the Canucks would actually roll with this, but I definitely agree in, in terms of maybe you're missing a playmaking element. That's where I kind of love the idea of having Niels Hoaglander. Um, you shift him to the left wing, and he's a pass-first player who, um, when you look at um, his underlying profile and some of the micro stats, um, he was a really prolific setup man, especially coming out of the cycle, and, and he has a complementary game to bow. Um, especially as another kind of strong puck retriever. So I think you can add that element on the left wing, potentially with Holglander. We'll see if Travis Green would be willing to have two undersized wingers on the same line. Um, but it, it, even if they don't fit, the, the beauty of Vancouver's top nine as it's kind of shaking, sh- shaping up is you have a ton of f- positional flexibility. Like Garland, for example, is a player who can play the right side. He can bl- play the left side. Um, you've got JT Miller and Jason Dickinson as players who can play both center and wing. Um, Holglander can play both wings. Pod Colson can play both wings. So there are just an endless number of combinations that the coaching staff can kind of tinker with within the top nine. I mean, you could even, if you wanted, um, go with uh, Garland on the left wing and then go Pedersen and, and Besser, and then maybe you shift Miller to, to Horvat's wing and so there are just, again, an endless number of combinations. I'd love to see Garland and, and Horvat um, get a first crack at it because I looked at the lotto line and the success they had a couple of years ago and how they were one of the NHL's best first lines. And, you know, I just love the idea of reuniting them as a, as a first kind of look. But um, if Garland and Horvat don't click, it's no worries at all just because of, uh, again, the, the wide array of alternative options they can run with. Uh, well, the other interesting element of this, and, and some people are texting in about it as well, just uh, what do you pay Connor Garland, a guy who hasn't clipped 40 points uh, in his career? Now, you mentioned 65-point pace and uh, I think a very productive player. He is a guy who hasn't made over a million dollars in a season. His career earnings are uh, in around $2.5, $2.7 million, somewhere around there. And I'm just curious, like if, if you were to put term in front of this guy and say, hey, here's you know somewhere between – 14 or, or sorry 15 million dollars or somewhere between 17 million dollars over five four or five years is he actually going to say no or is he the type of guy that's going to bet on himself finally in an offensive environment and he can uh, pile up some points yeah I, I think the Canucks you know likely would prefer a medium-term deal maybe that buys out some UFA years um, I think, you know, what was interesting today was you had Sam Bennett, um, same age as Garland. And again, Bennett was an excellent fit in Florida, but he's never topped or even hit 40 points in his career. And he got 4.4 times four. So I think that's a pretty lofty comparison. Like if I'm uh, Connor Garland's agent, I'm really happy with that Sam Bennett deal because then I'm, I'm hopefully looking at something closer to the $5 million range um, on an annual basis. So um, you know, that's that's going to be really interesting. And I think that's an element, too, where um, especially with the big kind of breakout year Garland had, it's not just the point totals, but the fact that he did it in Arizona, where, again, under Rick Tockett, they played um, an ultra defensive system. It's it's almost similar to the New York, New York Islanders system, where it's a really tough environment to produce offense. And so I'm sure that's going to play uh, a part in, in negotiations. And, and even the year before that, he still hit 22 goals in 68 games. So um, he's in the last couple of years, he's really become, I think, a proven top six scorer. And so for that reason, um, I think he's going to be rather expensive. He's in line for a pretty significant uh, pay, pay raise. 
Um, and I wonder if, if somewhere around the $5 million range is where um, his price tag ultimately ends up being. You know, Harmon, obviously, I think the way we look at this trade, you know, three, four, five, six years from now is largely going to be determined by how Oliver Ekman Larson plays here in Vancouver. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, this is an opportunity for him to get a fresh start, for him to bounce back. I mean, how much of a bounce back do you think it's realistic to expect? And, you know, related to that, what level do the Canucks need him to get to in order to make this a win, at least in the medium term? Well, they don't need Oliver Ekman Larson to be the uh, top of the lineup, number one defenseman um, that he was in the prime of his career. And in talking about a potential bounce back, I think we can all agree that it's um, not fair to expect him to return to that kind of level. Um, but in having said that, I do think the psychological element of a fresh start there are a, a ton of reasons why um, he should do better in Vancouver. I mean, just at the end of the day, uh, you look at kind of the environment OEL was in um, and all the factors that kind of went into, you know, the, the last few seasons. I mean, this is a player who had been in Arizona for 11 NHL campaigns, just two playoff appearances, uh, and the most recent one in the Edmonton bubble um, they had been dispatched by Colorado in a demoralizing first-round first loss. Uh, he spent his entire career in an indifferent hockey market that struggled to get bands in the building. Um, he, it's widely known that he had a pretty rocky relationship with head coach Rick Tockett. He's playing in a defensive system that probably doesn't suit him all that well. Um, Arizona off the ice has been in complete disarray with financial woes and a toxic work environment. Um, he came into the last year knowing that he was nearly traded and he wasn't really wanted um, in Arizona. So I just think over the last few years, it became a stale and dysfunction, dysfunctional relationship. Um, and so I talked to a source within the Coyotes organization who told me he genuinely believes that a change of scenery will serve Ekman Larson really well, that he still has gas left in the tank as a bona fide top four defenseman. Um, so I think that has to kind of be the ex- expectation is, um, I believe that he can be a genuine top four piece um, for the foreseeable future. But and having said that, obviously he's struggled quite a bit and, and you can't, I think really um, just attribute all of that to um, having a tough environment in Arizona, because, um, you know, we can talk about obviously the numbers and even the scouts who've watched him play and, and kind of noticed the dip in play. OEL himself admitted that he's that he struggled and, and needs to be a lot better than he was um, in Arizona. And so when you have a defenseman who is now 30 years old and you've already started to see him kind of, um, you know, his his production start to taper um, and you see that that sort of downward trajectory start to form. I think you're at a, at a stage where for the next two, three, maybe if you're lucky four years, um, that can kind of stabilize and, and he can perhaps be a top four piece, but you know, at 7.26 for another six years, there's definitely an outsized risk profile. Um, and so, you know, ultimately in the long run, I do think this contract is going to come, uh, come around and bite Vancouver in the rear. Um, but again, it's also it's one of those situations, really, where this trade is, I think, short-term gain for potential long-term pain, and and that's how how I kind of view um, OEL and, and this entire trade as a whole. 
Uh, Harmon Dial from The Athletic in Vancouver joining us. Uh, we'll let you go on this. Uh, what's on the to-do list? Outside of Nate Schmidt and Brayton Holpe, we know they're going to get moved out. But, but what does the to, uh, uh, to-do list look like for you? Well, if you move out Schmidt, which I think we can all agree is pretty, seems pretty likely at this juncture, um, it's adding right-handed uh, defensemen because uh, at this point, you know, you still have Travis Hamannick unsigned. Um, Myers, if you were to move Schmidt out, would be the only um, right-side defenseman uh, on your blue line. And so, you know, if maybe you bring back Hamannick and, and he's your potential partner for Quinn Hughes, um, but then you've got to figure out a, a partner for OEL. And I think that's going to be really key, especially you have a newcomer and, and I really do think a fresh start will benefit Ekman Larson, but you want to put him in a position to succeed. And we know Vancouver's going to lean on him heavily. And so if that's the case, you need to, you need to make sure that you bring in the right partner. Um, it's going to be fascinating when you look at, you know, some of the potential right shot defensemen that are available in free agency. When you look at the likes of um, David Savard, um, uh, Jason Demers um, at a, at a lower level, guys like Cody CC and, uh, Yanni Hackenpay. Um, so I think really right side help on, on the blue line is, is going to be something that uh, is at the top of the priority list after that. I think you need to add some center depth. Um, you know, you move out Jay Beagle and, and that's inefficient money. That's great. But he had still kind of been penciled in that fourth line center role. And um, even even if Beagle was still there, I think the club still needed an extra center um, with Tyler Breovac um, uh, not in the fold anymore. So those are two of the top kind of positions or priorities that uh, stick out to me. Harmon Dial from The Athletic in Vancouver. Again, at Harmon Dial 2 if you follow him online on Twitter. Thanks a lot, Harm. Thanks. That's uh, uh, Harmon Dial, Vic Nazar, and uh, Jamie Dodd here filling in for... Uh, Scott and Karen will take a break. I want to continue that conversation on the to-do list and start looking at some you know, fourth-line targets as well for the Vancouver Canucks. Harmon mentioned a bunch of interesting right-handed D-men. We'll continue that talk. And your thoughts as well coming into the 650-650 text message inbox. Bick Nazar, J.B. Dodd filling in this week for Rintoul and Sermon. That's Elliot Friedman when he joined Donnie and Dolly. Uh, Elliot Friedman will join uh, Sportsnet 650 tomorrow with the People's Show with Sat, Dan, and Randeep at 4 o'clock. Uh, but he was mentioning there's just the, the Hughes contract. Obviously, it's one of the things on the to-do list, Jamie. Uh, Bicknazar, Jamie Dodd here with you for the Vancouver Canucks this offseason. You know, one thing that's interesting, too, about moving all those contracts that Jim Benning did this offseason, that's why I was kind of mentioning, you know, settling family business and no inefficiencies in all the roster. Right now, the Canucks are hovering around 24-ish million dollars, depending you know, what you want to talk about, who's on the roster and who's not after the Vertanen buyout and all this sort of stuff. In theory, if you were preparing for Schmidt and Holpe to be removed from the roster as well, pending, you know, what cost of a buyout or if it's via trade, you, know, you could get upwards of like $35 million to cap space. And again, in theory, one of the things you could do with all that money is say, Hughes and Pedersen, maybe we go cycle back on long-term deals. I don't think it'll happen, but in theory, that option is open to you. I think it's going to be too tight when you factor in, you know, the work they still have to do at the bottom of the roster, replacing Nate Schmidt and Braden Holpe, right? It's not as if the replacements are going to be minimum salary guys. Then you add in a guy like Connor Garland, Jason Dickinson, a little bit of cost uncertainty with both of them. 
it's still not going to quite add up to a situation where they can go long term. But it will be interesting to see what that extra little bit of flexibility, how it shapes, if at all, how it shapes the Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes extensions. Especially when you saw Heiskanen get signed, when you see McCarr get signed. And if you're Quinn Hughes, you're thinking, man, global pandemic, is it really smart to turn, say no to $60 million, right? Kind of get that locked in. How many, am I going to lose more seasons? All this sort of stuff. Do you approach it from that matter and say, hey, security is nice and and knowing that money is going to be in the bank is pretty, pretty sweet. Uh, Do you cycle back on a six, seven year deal? And is that something that the Vancouver Canucks could re-explore? I, I do think that's part of this, too, of if you wanted to, uh, it, it would make some decisions tougher elsewhere. I get it. But you could open your mind to the idea of finally extending these guys to term instead of, hey, bridge deals because we're in a tight cap situation. It's certainly more plausible now than it was a couple of weeks ago, right? I mean, and for a long time, we've all been operating under the idea that they're going to do bridge deals of some sort with Hughes and Pedersen. That's still where I would put my money. Yeah. But it seems more likely now that you could see a little bit of extra term. Uh, Which was a a fascinating part uh, of the weekend's transactions for Jim Benning, uh, clearing out that money, bringing in Oliver Ekman Larson, and uh, bringing in uh, Connor Garland as well. Uh, It it was interesting uh, talking to... uh, uh, Harmon Dial there, where you're just mentioning, uh, you know, Sam Bennett's contract potentially is comparable. That's fascinating too, because the thing is, Bennett's also done it in the postseason, and I'm curious how much of that 4.4 gets uh, added in because of his postseason success as well. That's something Connor Garland hasn't uh, done as well, and draft pedigree as well, which is bizarre that that matters so much, but it does matter a lot in the NHL, right? Like Sam Bennett still gets the benefit of the doubt of being a former fourth overall pick, right? And I think Florida almost looked at it as, okay, he's this guy who has fourth overall pick level of talent, just hasn't clicked for him in Calgary. Oh, but it worked for us here. So basically they're treating him almost as a fourth overall pick again at this point. You know, Connor Garland, he was drafted much later. He wasn't drafted until the fifth round. Like, I'm not saying it it makes the all the difference in these negotiations, but your draft pedigree can still either help or hurt you in your RFA negotiations. And you're right. The playoffs is a big one. I think just time in the NHL, you know, Garland's really only played three seasons in Arizona. That matters as well. It's, it's an interesting comparable, but you would have to think that if Garland signs for four years, he's getting less than Sam Bennett. Uh, we're, we're talking about to-do lists, uh, Todd and Coquitlam, uh, exclamation marks in our inbox. Why is there too much, sorry, why is there not much chat about who's going to back up Demko? 25 plus games between the pipes is way more important than a fourth line center. Uh, I get his point. Uh, You know, backup goaltending is going to be uh, something to be considered uh, moving forward. I just, uh, I, I think you could find that one out. Right, and, and we've heard creative ideas. I know Kevin Woodley was on Halford and Bruff last week talking about, hey, is there something you could do with Mikey DiPietro, you know, shuttling between Abbotsford and you know when he needs to play a game in Vancouver, coming back, and that's the benefit of having a team so close by. Do you rather, instead of having a true number two, do you have two number threes and use the games wisely for Mikey DiPietro when he's not playing in the AHL? Yeah, that concerns me a little bit. And just from everything we've heard from the Canucks and from Ryan Johnson, it's from Trent Cull. You know, they want Mikey DiPietro to be in the AHL as a workhorse 
goalie for them, right? And, you know, especially launching the new team in the Fraser Valley close to home. Well, he'd still be playing probably games want that there. stability. Yeah, but, I mean, do you want to complicate his season like that? Especially since he just had such a weird year during the pandemic, right? Like, don't you want to just get him a straightforward, basic, all you have to focus on is playing well as our number one goalie? Like, I, I don't know. I To me... Just go out and sign a backup goalie, right? Rather than trying to get a little too cute with it, taking some risks, I think, with Mikey DiPietro, let him do it in the AHL this year. Go out and find a backup for Thatcher Demko. The year after, like, yeah, the expectation, the 2022 season, my expectation is Mikey DiPietro on the NHL roster, ready to go as a backup and, yes. and push for more games that way. Kind of what Thatcher Demko did last season, or sorry, two seasons ago, where he was behind Jacob Markstrom, you know, push for opportunities. Your pedigree is probably higher than the amount of games you're getting, but push for opportunities, play the game at the NHL level, and that's when you're ready to go. So next season, look, it's an option the Canucks can explore. And maybe, just maybe, if you do it the way of having three goalies, maybe you save 250 k on the cap instead, and you get a $800,000 goalie that can play both ways instead of a 1.1 know, goalie or 1.2 goalie that you just have solidified there completely. But and, the and, other question and where is, does that money know, matter? Yeah. The other question though, Bick, is do does the front office even want to roll the dice like that, right? Because we know, we knew going into the offseason they wanted to be aggressive. They've been aggressive now. They obviously want to make a playoff push. Are they going to you know, backup goalie is still a really important position. Look, obviously it's Thatcher Demko's crease. He's got to carry the team, but you're still going to be playing your backup 20-25 games. I don't know if they want to gamble their playoff push on a kind of you know duct tape uh haywire we'll we'll just jerry rig this and, and hope it gets us through this season like i think they would rather go and get a dependable nhl backup for that insurance policy so how many games do you want thatcher Demko to play then right i i, I think you, you kind of have to reverse engineer this yep. of so there's 82 games you probably want him to play ideal number 57 58 somewhere around yeah, there. Yeah, it's it's between 57 and 61, something like that, right? So like 57, 58, 59, 60 is probably what you're looking at. So we're talking between 20 to 24 games. Yep. How many of those 24 do you want to give Mikey DiPietro? Cuz I think I'm answering that question first before I answer the question of how many games do I want to give to a backup. In an ideal world, I think you give zero of those games to Mikey DiPietro. You oh, give see, him I, all of the games on in Abbotsford. That's what you I'm, do. I'm of the mind that like five might make sense because like if that Demko gets hurt, you're gonna need to bring Mikey De- Mikey DiPietro up anyways. But it, well, look, I, yeah, ideal worlds and all that sort of stuff. But even even then, I still might say somewhere between three to five games. And so now we're talking about you know sixteen ish games for your backup goalie. And do you want to spend $1.5 million on that? 1.6? I'm more in the mind that just like, hey, million dollars tops. Hey, go bargain hunting for sure. I get that. I that That's important. I understand that you want to save a lot of money versus what you're spending on Braden Holtby. Completely understand that. I just don't think they're going to go out of their way to engineer scenarios for Mikey DiBietro to get NHL games, right? If there's an injury... If either Demko or whoever's the backup goes down and DiPietro has to come up and play some games, I don't think they'll have a problem with that, right? He, he, you know, he's at that level where you can feel decently confident about bringing him up. 
But I don't see them at all going out of their way to find opportunities to sneak them up to the NHL, play a game, and then shuttle them back to Abbotsford. Like Again, I think simplicity is the goal here, right? They go into the season, you know exactly what role Mikey DiPietro is going to play. He's going to be the workhorse in Abbotsford. Just let him focus on that without wondering, like, hey, is this one of my three or four NHL games I'm getting this year, right? Don't even complicate it like that. Just keep it simple. Nick Nazar, Jamie Dodd. Uh, so before we even get to a point of Mikey DiPietro playing games, uh, Braden Holpe has to go out and you know wait and see on that. Uh, still to determine whether he gets bought out. I, I kind of think the buying out route is uh, a bad one. Uh, just because you're complicating your cap, your cap down the road. It's it's short term gain for another long term pain. The, 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 to me, there's no sense in opening up the three point nine million dollars just to say, "Hey, you know what?" Uh, or sorry, three point eight. We're cool with a one point nine million dollar charge. Like next season, the cap is kind of still looking pristine because you don't have the Luongo capture recapture anymore. You're done with Beagle, Vertanen, uh, Roussel, and uh, Erickson. They're all gone. Uh, so next season, I don't really want to add extra cap charges that I don't need to. So if you can avoid a Hopi buyout, that is the play. But uh, it's not the only thing on the to-do list for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, solving a more right-shot demon is important. But also, I, I do think the fourth-line center is something that needs to be attended to. And And I'm trying to think of players right now that might be available in the free agent market that fit the mold of what Jim Benning has had before. You know, previous actions dictate future actions. And we've seen Jim Benning kind of follow the same script of, hey, I've always thought goaltending matters, so I spend in goaltending and I bring guys in for to, to, to be goaltending. We see with Braden Holtby. You think of who he's brought in to play third and fourth line centers in the entire tenure of his uh, time as general manager – there is a trend that you start to pick up on. It's it's guys who can win faceoffs and penalty killers and spend a lot of time in their D zone as far as uh, shift starts. And it's it's the Nick Dowds of the world. It's Jay Beagle. It's Brandon Sutter. It's all of those types of guys who can win faceoffs and play that role. And you start to filter that for what's available in the free agent market. It, it's a small list, but. I look at a bunch of guys like Tyler Bozak, Sean Corrali, Luke Glendanning, Pierre Edward Belmare. Are, are these guys that Jim Benning can look at and say, these, like, this is my market that I want to target because they can win faceoffs, they can play on the penalty kill. And some of these guys, you think of veteran experience, that's what Jim Benning was looking for in the bottom end of his roster. And I think the interesting question there, and, you know, Jim Benning addressed this in his press conference after the OEL deal, like Beagle leaving obviously opens the door for Brandon Sutter, who's a UFA, mm-hmm. to potentially come back. So I think the question with those names you just ran down there is, are you willing to spend more on one of those guys than it would take to retain Brandon Sutter, right? Or are you just, are you ready to say, you know what, if Brandon Sutter is going to be super cheap, we're happy with him in that fourth line center role because You know, again, we're talking about it. Yeah, they can theoretically open up a pretty sizable chunk of cap space here, but a lot of that is going to be immediately taken up by their RFAs. They've got a lot of RFA business to attend to here. So can you afford to go out and spend even a little bit of a premium on a fourth-line center? Now, in a flat-cap world, the names you mentioned, a lot of those guys are going to get squeezed, right? And they're going to be out there 
you know, at least one or two of those guys is going to be on the market, you know, a week or two into free agency and willing to take a little bit less money. But I think that's the question is, are any of those names, do any of those names at the fourth line center position move the needle enough to justify spending more than you would on Brandon Sutter? The, the interesting too, and, and, and like those guys are just the, the, the UFAs right now. There are some RFAs, and today's obviously qualifying offer deadline day as well today. And we're seeing some reports of, hey, certain guys aren't getting uh, QO'd. We even see the, someone like Dujar Kara. Uh, is that something that they kick tires on who can play in the bottom end of the roster and, and be responsible to some degree and you know eat the important minutes, play that role that you know is very thankless of blocking shots, being on the penalty kill. Is that something we, we see the Vancouver Canucks explore as, and wait for the market to kind of oversaturate and pick off what's later, or what's available later? Well, we're waiting for kind of the qualifying offer news to shake out around the NHL right now. Today is the deadline, but this happened last offseason too, right? Where some guys you weren't necessarily expecting to hit the open market did because their teams just didn't like, didn't feel like they could offer them that qualifying offer. And I think that'll happen again this year because of the flat cap situation. So it's a good point. You know, we all do this, right? When we're trying to do play armchair GM and build the roster before free agency starts, you know, we go to cap friendly and we filter by guys who are a UFA, right? Cause you don't want to think about offer sheets or anything like that. But that list is going to grow here over the next few hours when a bunch of surprising players, I would, I would assume don't get qualifying offers. Yeah, I think we're going to see a couple of names that you just look at and say, like, all right, is, is that someone that you want to try to explore and, and kind of cycle back on? And uh, we'll wait for the full full list when, when they all come out. But, yeah, I'd be really interested to see what names don't get qualified and, and to see if there's uh, uh, something the Canucks can circle back on. Because that, that bottom end of the roster, it, it's been the uh, – obviously with Erickson and Beagle, it has been the – point of contention for a lot of Canucks fans and Canucks media alike to say it's hard to compete when you're dedicating that much money for little production, for as little production as they were getting. Uh, and we've heard, hey, they're trying to be a bit more smart, a bit more frugal about it and, and look for the bargain opportunities. The, the bottom end of the roster is going to get populated here a bit because of some guys that don't get qualified offer and, and it, it just going to just balloon up the market potentially. Yeah. It, it, and I mean, you know, no surprise. We're getting lots of texts rolling in asking about Jujar Kara, Adam, the former bath guy, Ben from kids, both texting in, you know, Ben from kids saying, I think he would really help add decent size and penalty killing skills of a team. And yeah, absolutely. Look, he's from Surrey. I understand there's always going to be that attraction mm-hmm. to local products. I get it, but sure. Why wouldn't you look at Jujar Kara in a fourth line role? Right. And I think he might, price himself more into that kind of premium fourth liner price that I don't necessarily think the Canucks should be shopping in. But I think you have to make, you have to make the phone call, right? And you got to kick tires. And, you know, that's a good example of what we're talking about. Jujar Kerr is not going to blow you away as a hockey player, but he can be a really nice contributor in the right spot on your bottom six. And more of those types of players are going to become available for the Canucks here. And they need multiple depth forwards too. That's the other thing. It's not just a fourth line center. At the fourth line center, you probably need another fourth line winger. You want to create competition for Zach McEwen and Matt Highmore to make the roster and say, hey, are you, are you going to be a 12 forward or are you going to be a 13, 14 forward? And, and you got to earn that spot in regular ice time right now. You want that competition there amongst those guys because uh, the top nine looks interesting now and, and looks pretty productive. The last line, though, Still some things to be ironed out uh, to, to skate with Tyler Mott. 
two 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 spots going to get filled, and you can't just say done and dusted. We're happy with these twelves. There's going to be injuries. You got to keep pushing the tempo and keep increasing the bar of competition moving forward. The other the other interesting conversation is uh, as far as to do lists is Nate Schmidt. It's it, it was so funny just watching over the weekend. Uh, you know, he, he was doing a, a softball a, a charity softball tournament in Las Vegas, and you know, we, we think uh, think of that uh, boisterous personality, and it just it felt like it was on display. You're thinking this guy just might feel like he's he's more suited to be in this city in this town. And is this the last we're seeing of Nate Schmidt kind of enjoying his summer before he gets moved out? I I don't know. I just thought it was just kind of funny uh, watching over the weekend to see how uh, feels like we didn't see that version of Nate Schmidt over the course of the season. Well- it's too bad because, I mean, he had that legendary introductory press conference, right, where he was super animated and super upbeat and positive, and that's really the kind of guy he is. You know, I don't know. I, I'm kind of in the minority where I don't think, you know, everyone's everyone says, oh, well, it just didn't work out there. I don't, he was okay. It's not like he was terrible for the Canucks last year. Like, I think you could easily build an argument for bringing him back if he wasn't also looking elsewhere, but I understand it. And, you know, we even heard from EJ Raddick earlier in the show, right? Like, he just has that magnetic kind of personality that's really fun to root for. So I don't know. It is disappointing because I think he's better than what he showed on the ice. He's obviously a super easy to like guy off the ice. And again, I'm, I'm still kind of the mindset of, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I get you want to shed some of that salary, but he's still a decent player. And I don't think just because it didn't work last year in Vancouver doesn't mean it couldn't work this year next down the road for the Canucks. That's fair. And, and I, I don't think either side saw the best version of themselves no. uh, this past season. So I understand the frustration from either side and say, hey, well, we didn't get the best version of you, but you weren't the one putting your best foot forward. I get that. But let's just say he returns. Like, what do you make the pairings? And, and, and this is the conversation that's like, is so difficult to find, to figure out the fit. It's, they don't want to play Hughes and Schmidt together as much as I think it could succeed. They clearly would have tried that last year and they didn't. So are you going to put Myers and Hughes together? Or is Myers that... going to be on the third pair with Rathbone? You don't really have the money to bring someone else to play with a Quinn Hughes. It's like that conversation is why it, it feels like you have to do the Schmidt trade. A trade. Yeah, that's ultimately what it is, right? It's not performance related. It's man, can we afford to allocate this much of our salary cap to this player when we have so many other holes to fill on the blue line? Like at his position, you have lots of holes to fill. That's the issue. Uh, we will uh, continue the conversation tomorrow uh, with uh, Bick Nazar and Jamie Dodd filling in for Rintoul and Sermon. Uh, it is a busy day today. Uh, on Sportsnet 650. C-Mac and Chad Day coming up next uh, at 1 o'clock. But uh, Todd Harvey will join uh, the People's Show later today. Uh, big draft weekend, obviously. And I think there's a lot of giddiness over what the Canucks selected uh, over the weekend. And you know, it remains to be seen how these guys pan out, Jamie. But... From internally, it looks like there's a lot of excitement about what they drafted. I'm kind of intrigued by Klimovich. Do you have a favorite prospect that they uh, picked up? Just as far as like, hey, where could this guy go um, as far as upside? Well, I like the Klimovich pick. I don't I don't mind it anyways. I mean, I think 
he's very, very much a, a big risk, big reward. Like, there's a lot of risk there. But that's what I got to like. say. It's just, it's like, yeah. you know, when, when you didn't have as many shots, try to find first-line players. Like, go for it. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that strategy. The The guy I'm, the name I'm maybe most intrigued by, and I've just gotten word that he's going to be on the station, in fact, coming on, coming up on Bick and the Boss is uh, Connor Lockhart. You know, a bit of a smaller guy, but showed well in his pre-draft year in the, in the OHL. Mm-hmm. Didn't get a chance to play in his draft year, obviously. Like, that's a lottery ticket to me that has a lot of potential upside because, you know, there's a mystery element there. And you look at just what he did in his pre-draft year, it's pretty solid. Like, it's easy to imagine him being, you know, a point-of-game player in the OHL in his draft season, in which case he would have been taken much earlier than he was by the Canucks. And plus, maybe you can learn from another Connor. Connor Lockhart, Connor Garland. Hey, how do you play sure. like a shorter player in the league? Why not? Why not? Uh, a lot of Connor Garland texts coming in uh, into our text message inbox, 650-650. So uh, some people worried about his contract status. Well... Uh, yeah, he could get offer sheeted. I, I, I would be, I, I'm still stunned. Like we just don't see offer sheets in general. I, I, I would just be stunned in general if, uh, yeah, teams decided Connor Garland's the guy that we go after to offer sheet. Yeah. The, the, the appetite for teams to tie up their cap space at the beginning of free agency in order to offer sheet Connor Garland. I don't think it's there. 100%. Keep the text coming in. 650, 650. We'll make way now for uh, Bick, but not me, on the boss and the boss uh, on Bick and the boss. It's Craig McEwen and Chad Day coming up, taking you the rest of the way here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.